0: Welcome to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM-157. How can we prevent heart attacks in women? You are listening to ReachMD XM-157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD special series, Exploring Heart Health. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the University of Chicago, and with me today is Dr. Joanne Foody. Dr. Joanne Foodie is the Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Director of the Cardiovascular Wellness Center at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital in Boston. Dr. Foodie, welcome to our program.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Today we're going to discuss women and how to prevent heart disease. And I thought first we would set the stage. The number one killer in women in this country still is heart disease. Can we think about some treatments to prevent prevent this disease in women. Let's start first with lifestyle. What are lifestyle things that women should do to help prevent heart disease?
1: You know, I think that we have a tremendous epidemic of cardiovascular risk. And the first thing that we can all do for women is to recognize that so much of the risk for cardiovascular disease is based on lifestyle and the choices we make about our health. So, We recognize women play a critical role, not only in their own health, but in the health of their families. And we need to emphasize the importance of exercise and maintenance of weight, as well as adopting dietary strategies that keep weight down, reduce cholesterol, reduce salt, and increase fruits and vegetables. And all these interventions together really can make a
0: difference. So let's talk a little bit about exercise. What is the prescription or recommendation that you give to the average women to help prevent them from developing heart disease?
1: I appreciate that in our society, it is very difficult for people to get into routines around exercise. Our national guidelines are very prescriptive about exercise, and currently the women's guidelines say that we should be recommending at least 30 minutes of aerobic exercise every day of the week to our patients. I recognize how important this is, so what I tend to do is make it a little bit simpler for my patients. I emphasize we need to be active. We need to increase our steps that we take. So I'm a believer in the 10,000-step program, and I recommend to all my patients that they get a pedometer And try to get 10,000 steps in a day. And we know that if you can be active throughout your day, whether it's in one- or two-minute spurts and just keeping that activity level, you do very well, and it's comparable to a much more intense, focused, carved-out exercise program, which is often very difficult for many women to fit into their busy days.
0: I know how difficult exercise is. Do you have your own pedometer, and are you up to 10,000 over at Brigham?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think we have some great strategies that we use. We understand that people are often very competitive. We've encouraged people to develop programs at their work, programs at their houses of worship, and make it a game. Make it something fun. Get the whole family involved and see, first and foremost, understand how much you're actually walking. People are amazed at either how little steps they take in a day or how many they may take. And so this is also about knowledge and helping people understand what their activity is like on a given day.
0: I know at our hospital, it's impossible to get an elevator. And so I no longer wait for the elevators and run up and down stairs. So that might be another suggestion you can give to patients as well to try to get through the bottlenecks in the hospital and at their place of work. How about the role of diet? What type of diet do you recommend to your average patient?
1: Well, to the average patient, I, again, try to provide simple messages around diet. We have a myriad of diets, and I think that, in general, a layperson is confused by what's out there. I believe that the major issue in the U.S. is predominantly one of too many calories and portion size. So I do a lot of teaching around portion size, and one simple thing I do is I ask my patients to get rid of their large dinner plates, which have evolved over the last couple of decades to be the size of chargers, and move to a smaller plate, and I have a visual for them that's quite easy. Half the plate should be vegetables, a quarter of the plate should be meat or a protein, and a quarter should be starch. And they can fill it up as high as they want, but they can fill it up once. And that's their dinner plate. And generally, with that recommendation, people lose weight. They have improvements in their insulin resistance. They have improvements in their cholesterol level, just strictly from changing the makeup of the meal by increasing the vegetables and reducing the volume and the portion size. In general, beyond that, For people who, I believe, are ready for more information around diet, I generally recommend a Mediterranean diet, again, lots of fruits and vegetables, and again, reductions in cholesterol, high-fat meats, and increases in fish, particularly those that contain omega-3 fatty acids.
0: Do you ever recommend fish oil capsules or supplements to your patients?
1: I do. I believe that fish oil supplementation is quite beneficial. And there are a couple groups of patients, people who can't increase fish intake or, quite frankly, don't want to eat fish. I generally recommend about a gram as just a routine dietary supplement for cardiovascular benefit. And there are data regarding reductions in arrhythmia. More importantly, and where I tend to use these much more frequently, are in my patients with high triglycerides where doses on the order of 3 to 4 grams a day work very dramatically in reducing triglycerides, although you have to watch a little bit about LDL and potential increases in those patients. But overall, this is a great supplement that I think as clinicians we don't always think about.
0: If you have just tuned in, you're listening to a REACH MD special series exploring heart health on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joanne Foodi, and we're talking about ways to prevent heart disease in women. A question that's asked to me very frequently is the dose of aspirin and when we should start aspirin in women. What is your approach to the use of aspirin? When should we start it, and what typical dose would you use?
1: Now, the issue of aspirin use in women is quite controversial. So, in general, the data regarding aspirin for the primary prevention of cardiovascular events in women is not robust and doesn't demonstrate a benefit. That being said, however, I'm happy to extrapolate the data to my women without heart disease but who may be in a higher risk category for cardiovascular events. So women with hypertension, women with very strong family histories, certainly women with metabolic syndrome, I am much more likely in those women, assuming that their bleeding risk is otherwise low, to give aspirin in the hopes of reducing cardiovascular events. Now, clearly the data are not available to support that approach in primary prevention, but I believe strongly that I am likely to improve their outcomes based on their risk. When I do give aspirin, whether it's for men and women, I prescribe 81 milligrams of aspirin, understanding that the data are strongest for that dose with the greatest benefit and least amount of harm with respect to bleeding as a
0: complication. Now, what about lipid-lowering therapy? We know that lipids change at the menopause, is there a role for using pharmacological agents at a younger age in a premenopausal woman?
1: Again, we have controversy around lipid lowering in women. Most sub-analyses of lipid lowering trials have demonstrated benefit in women that's comparable to the risk reduction we see in men, if not more so. The issue becomes the fact that very few women have been enrolled in clinical trials to really look at this question, particularly in primary prevention. Again, my sense is that we should not withhold lipid lowering in women without cardiovascular disease just because they're women. Again, with an appropriate risk stratification, we need to be aggressive about modifying risk associated with increased lipids in women. And, in fact, if we look at the American Heart Association guidelines specifically for women, they are quite aggressive about LDL reduction in women and also go to the next step and say that we need to be more aggressive not only about LDL but about reducing non-HDL cholesterol in an effort to modify risk.
0: Now, there has been some data that strongly suggests that HDL is a better risk predictor in women if we look at the different uh, lipoprotein fractions, and a low HDL can certainly indicate a very high-risk woman. Is there a role then for trying to start therapies that will raise HDL in these women?
1: Now, you're, you're picking so many controversial points, and the reality is, is we really don't have data in women. And quite frankly, with respect to HDL raising, we don't have that data in men, with the exception of, for example, data with niacin. In general, women's HDL tends to be higher, and there hasn't been studies of women because of that with respect to HDL. But if we extrapolate from other clinical trials, predominantly in men, we see improvement in outcomes with increases in HDL with interventions such as niacin. More recently, this whole field has really been brought into question because of the recent failed trial of tricetropib with HDL raising. But I think our listeners need to stay tuned about further studies and new agents in either the CETP inhibitor class or new preparations of niacin that will be available and where new data will be available to help inform this decision.
0: So let me see if I can pin you down to a recommendation. Again, I know controversial because there's not data, but you have a 45 to 50-year-old premenopausal woman who has a mixed hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, early diabetic, start therapy with a typical statin drug. LDL is now down to 90, but the HDL is 35. Triglycerides are normal, so we don't have a high non-HDL cholesterol necessarily. Is this woman then somebody you would just recommend lifestyle or is this one that you would add niacin to?
1: So in this particular patient who to me is at higher risk based on their risk profile, I would recommend both lifestyle and niacin and really educate that woman on the benefits of niacin, educate them about potential issues with flushing, but ultimately titrate the niacin up to a significant degree to elevate the HDL cholesterol.
0: I want to thank Dr. Joanne Foodie, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing women and heart disease. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to a special series exploring heart health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO, and receive six months free streaming for your office or home. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to our special series, Exploring Heart Health. Join us all month for more here on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.